The following podcast may contain explicit content, which is, I suspect, why many of you are tuning in in the first place. Hi, it's Mike. It's Saturday. This is the Saturday show. Saturday in the park. I think it was the 4th of July. In fact, it's the 2nd of July, but a nice three-day weekend. You really think about this, but two-sevenths of the July 4th weekend, you don't really celebrate on July 4th. This year we do. Do you want a trivia question? Of course you do. According to Wikipedia, how many current and former members of Chicago are there in total? Not in toto. Totally different band. Slight overlap. Add up the current and former members of Chicago. What number do you derive, arrive at? I'll meet you at the end of the show with that answer in the credits. So every... Saturday on the Saturday show, I bring you one from the vaults and one from this past week. And the subject is the same, though the occurrences were a year and a half apart. We talk about Supreme Court legitimacy. In a spiel I did this week, I talked about the legitimacy of the court and what would be the indications that it is or isn't. And I saw a bunch of people, a bunch of uh, GIST listeners talking on our Reddit page, Reddit slash the GIST, saying essentially, I think Mike is just being too literal about legitimacy. What we say when we mean the court isn't legitimate is that the, the, the decisions that they arrived at were arrived at by an illegitimate process. Either the thinking that went into them was not robust or consistent, or more specifically, given the construction of the court, the people on the court making that decision, not the fruits of a legitimate process. I get that. I hear that. I still stand by what I am saying. Think about it in the context of me acknowledging that I know that that is a complaint or that that is a way of looking at the question of legitimacy. But still, I wanted to say what I said, and I guess I wanted to say it so bad, I say it again. Then we talked to, or we talked to in September of 2020, Jonathan V. Last of the Bulwark, and what had just happened is that Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, and they were seeking a replacement, and he was saying, should that court, with that replacement of RBG, after... Mitch McConnell held the seat that was to go to Merrick Garland open. Would that court rule on a Donald Trump election? Then that will be a vast era of illegitimacy for the court. Now, in that interview, there was a bunch of uh, specific discussion mm, germane to the time. You know, what if Trump wins in Pennsylvania? What if there's chicanery in Arizona? And we took that out. We didn't take it out. Joel took it out. Thank you, Joel. So, We uh, chopped it up a little bit to make it more pertinent for your life, but I always think it's interesting to go back and think about the things we're really worrying about this week, how we worried about them a couple of years ago, and how context has changed a little bit around them. So first, enjoy my spiel from this week, and then Jonathan V. Last of the Bulwark. And now the spiel. Within the last five days, the Supreme Court has weakened the separation of church and state, displayed terrible illogic in New York rifle and pistol, v. Bruin, and dismantled the traditional application of the Miranda warning. Well, a couple of these decisions are ones I could live with, prayers on the 50-yard line, because I believe in pluralism, none are my preferred rulings. And at least one, guns, really hurts me, my community, and good governance in general. And then there's Dobbs which isn't just seismic, it's destabilizing. Which brings us to the very question of the court's legitimacy. 
The three members of the Supreme Court in their dissent cited their predecessors, Justices O'Connor, Kennedy, and Souter, three Republican appointees, obviously, when they said, quote, they knew that the legitimacy of the court is earned over time, citing a specific footnote that those three signed on to. And the current court went on to say they would also have recognized it, legitimacy, can be destroyed much more quickly. The verdict, they wrote, quote, undermines the court's legitimacy. Senator Elizabeth Warren went with a much more active verb than undermines on ABC's This Week, This Week. This court has lost legitimacy. They have burned whatever legitimacy they may still have had after their gun decision, after their voting decision, after their union decision. They just took the last of it and set a torch to it with the Roe versus Wade opinion. And the sentiment wasn't simply expressed out of frustration, well, more than frustration, despair at having lost the decision. No, Justice Sotomayor smelled the smoke given off by Senator Warren's conflagration as Dobbs was being argued before her. Here she is questioning Mississippi Solicitor General Scott Stewart at the time. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts. I, I, I don't see how it is possible. It's what Will this institution survive? Undermined legitimacy, yes. Torched or unable to survive this crisis in legitimacy? I am not so sure. In fact, I am sure that it will survive. In fact, we already know it will. But before we get to that, let me spend a second or two defining and talking about legitimacy as it's talked about. Like recession, legitimacy is felt more than carefully charted, but recession is defined by something tangible, if inexact, two quarters of economic decline. Like pornography, legitimacy is perceived to be at a level different from the intellectual. But unlike this very court once put it, legitimacy is not so impressionistic that you can only know it when you see it. The legitimacy of an institution lives in the feelings of the people, all the people, toward that institution. And we do know that overturning Roe versus Wade was unpopular. But that alone doesn't make the court illegitimate. The court once ruled that flag burning, which is a deeply unpopular act, was protected speech. The public didn't find the court illegitimate at the time, and not just for reasons of overall thrust of the court. Time and time again, the Warren court ruled in favor of criminals and accused criminals, and those were unpopular rulings. The court wasn't said to be illegitimate, or maybe it was said to be illegitimate, but it wasn't illegitimate. So what's the difference between those unpopular rulings and now? Is it that those rulings favored more liberal elites? Is it that they occurred before social media and instant outrage? Maybe that illegitimate is on a continuum, a couple stops past unpopular. I think it's actually something else. Illegitimate as an insult, an assertion, or claim just means I don't want to have to believe this. 
illegitimate as an accurate descriptor, that is actually determined by looking how the court functions with other institutions. The Senate, the House, state governments, the executive branch, all these institutions are essentially both pH paper and solution. Is the executive branch illegitimate? Well, let's see if the Justice Department holds or folds. That makes that determination. Is the Senate illegitimate? Let's see how the court rules on the laws. The proof that the court is still legitimate is this. As soon as they struck down New York State's gun laws, what did New York State do? Convened an emergency session in acknowledgement that the rule is legitimate. They have to follow it. The states that are all or were all waiting for the Supreme Court rule to trigger their anti-abortion laws, sure, they won, but that's also an acknowledgement of the court's legitimacy, as are the states on the other side which waited and reacted to a ruling strengthening their abortion laws, conveys legitimacy, shows they think the court has legitimacy. The ruling was not a fiction to disregard, and no one who actually had the force of law with them acted as if it was. The public can sour on a decision or react with anguish, rightly so in this case, and can say, you lost all legitimacy in my eyes, but the people who hold legitimacy Ultimately, within the system, if they're acting otherwise, it indicates the court has legitimacy. Maybe you heard that Andrew Jackson quote once about the court and legitimacy. Justice Marshall has made his ruling. Now let's see him enforce it. Andrew Jackson was full of bluster. Andrew Jackson biographers were skilled aphorists. The quote didn't appear until 20 years after Jackson's death. And in the case in question, Worcester versus Georgia, there was nothing actually for anyone to enforce. The ruling was actually really consequential, really important. Everyone followed it. It uh, pretty much was the foundation for the doctrine of tribal sovereignty. Very legitimate decision. With bad rulings and good rulings, and the Supreme Court has made much worse decisions than this one, they have still maintained their legitimacy. There was never a situation where uh, some equivalent of the Court of Avignon was making parallel rulings to the Supreme Court and no one knew which lessons to follow. The South seceded. They didn't follow the court. They lost. They were meant to pay. Is this court legitimate? Just through the prism of abortion and abortion rulings. Was this court legitimate because the original Roe v. Wade ruling was seven to two? Were those two dissenters dissenters or were they just illegitimate members of the court? Were the four who rejected Roe in the more recent Planned Parenthood versus Casey case, were they illegitimate? This, the Dobbs case, is a destructive decision and it is made by justices who all along told us they were going to decide this way in every way except saying, uh, as they were sitting in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, oh yeah, I'll definitely be deciding this way. We all knew it. They all said it. They all went to lengths to obfuscate where any fair reading by anyone this side of Susan Collins knew what they were going to do. It was right to deny them the vote. It was certainly right to oppose them, figuring this day would come. But the idea of legitimacy, in my opinion, can not only be cited when the bad thing happens after your court was stocked with actors who told you the bad thing was going to happen. And by the way, all of those same justices who maybe we're now saying or some people are saying contribute to the court's illegitimacy, they were the ones in question when Mike Pence's lawyers sparred with Donald Trump's illegitimate election architect John Eastman, 
where both those gentlemen ultimately decided that the plan to steal the election would lose nine to zero in the Supreme Court. Eastman and Trump, those guys are illegitimate. The backstop to them was the Supreme Court of the United States. The very notion of the Supreme Court of the United States not going along with that act of illegitimacy goes to show the court's actual status as legitimate. The court, the six of the six three, they're not anything like right or brave or fair or unbiased or wise or logical or beneficent or moral or constitutionally correct. I don't believe those six who overturned Roe to be exhibiting any of those traits. They are illegitimate, frustrating as that may be. Jonathan Vilas joins me now. I mean, we've done this weird thing over the years where we have really altered the balance of power constitutionally, and we've expanded the power of the executive branch. We've expanded the power of the judicial branch and and shrunk the power of the legislative branch, which is probably probably pretty bad for us long term. But even as that's happened, the judicial branch has still been regarded pretty widely as being legitimate. People look at it and they say, okay, I may not like this ruling. I may think that I would like this ruling to be changed at some point, but at least I'm going to respect that this ruling is the law of the land and it has been arrived at at a legitimate by a legitimate manner. And what Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans have done here is is really just break that. I, I don't think there's any other way to say that. And to be very clear, if they had voted on Merrick Garland and then decided to vote on this nominee now, I think that would basically be fine. If they had taken the same the tack they took on Garland and not held a vote and then not held a vote now, that would have been fine. You could make constitutional arguments for one of those eventualities over the other as being preferable. But so long as there's some basic consistency, you could say, OK, this might be suboptimal, but it's not the end of the world. Doing this with a swing seat, the only remedy winds up being a, a wholesale reform of the court. And reforming the court, just because we live in the worst of all possible timelines, is likely to take the form of... Uh, attempted reforms, which will continue to escalate the problem. And this is why the idea of expanding the court to, you know, by another, what, three justices or six justices, however many more justices you want to put on, I think winds up continuing down the very dangerous road we're on. And the the much better way would be to find a find a mechanism which would allow us to de-emphasize the importance of the court to make it less of a flashpoint and make it so that we don't have to have total war every time there's a Supreme Court nomination. And the obvious answer for that, I think, is to regularize the terms. So, you know, the Supreme Court terms are 18 years. You have a regular schedule. This way, even a two-term president doesn't get to have a majority of appointees on the court at any one time. But, you know, I, I have given up on hoping that anything good can ever happen in the world we live in. <laughs> well, well, that's good. That at least protects yourself. And as long as you're closeted. So when we talk about the legitimacy of the court, Gallup lasted polling in 2019. 
So what they ask is, how much trust and confidence do you have in, and they go through the different branches. So the executive branch in 2019 polled at cumulative 55% expressing not much or no confidence at all in the executive branch. The legislative branch, 61%, no confidence at all or not much confidence in the legislative branch, deservedly, I would say. The judicial branch was at only 31%, no confidence. They were at 69%, a great deal of confidence or a fair amount of confidence. So if it's seen as illegitimate, what does that really mean? Does that mean that the judicial branch numbers become the legislative branch numbers? Does that mean something other than the perception of the average American? Or does that mean, and this is what I'm leading up to, even if people don't have confidence in the president and the legislature, both those branches have the means to execute their policy. But the courts and the Supreme Court is fairly dependent, not just on the perception of legitimacy, but the perception by the other two branches of the legitimacy of the court's opinion. Otherwise, we get into the situation where Mr. Taney has made his ruling. Now let us see him enforce it. Yeah, I think that's that's right. And we've already seen this with the legislative branch. Look at the way the Trump administration has just simply refused to comply with directives from the legislature, right? You know, refusing to send witnesses and that saying, well, you know, how are you going to do that? You have the sergeant of arms go and, uh, you know, roust people up off the street and bring them in to, to testify. Why wouldn't you wind up at a point where the Supreme Court could make a ruling and the chief executive, who happens to also be the commander in chief, could then say, no, we're not going to do that. Would you put that past Donald Trump? I, I sure wouldn't. And, you know, legitimacy is one of these things that sounds like just this gauzy, gooey abstraction. And you don't really understand how important it is until it's gone. Because it's the foundation of everything. It is the consent of the governed. And once it goes away, you can't put it back together again. And, you know, I talk about us as a failed state. And we're not yet. It's important to say that this is, you know, I'm, I'm catastrophizing a little bit only because I'm looking down the road to say that you can see how this happens. And even if you don't think it's likely to happen, you know, you look at it and you say, look, we are unlikely to wind up like hungry. If there is a 5% chance that America could wind up like Hungary, that's a big fucking deal. Yeah. You know, like like this is a, a state of affairs that we have not had in America in 140 years. And to go from a 0% chance to a 2% or a 5% chance should scare the living crap out of everybody. Uh, you know, it turns out there are, there are many people who care, but there's like 40% of the country who – and this, this is the key part that worries me. There's 40% of the country who it isn't that they don't care – is that this is what they want. And for them, this is the juice. This is what they're signed up for. And they want a strong man, so long as the strong man is their strong man. And I just don't know how you're supposed to have a reasonably self-governed republic of 330 million people where 35 to 40% of them want to be hungry. Mm-hmm. Isn't one hallmark of a failed state not just dysfunction in the branches of government, but in fact armed insurrection and violent opposition to uh, the failures of the government? So do you predict if the legitimacy of the court um, comes to pass and our state becomes a failed state, is there any way to avoid some sort of actual violent clashes um, between the oppressed and the oppressors? I mean, we're already there. 
this is, you know, what we have seen over the last four years, uh, the political violence, which has been routinized across the country. And you see this, you know, when you see the, these giant melees going on for anywhere from Berkeley to Portland to Charlottesville to Chicago. And you got people coming out on both sides dressed with bike helmets and carrying flags that are really, you know, essentially medieval weapons and, you know, chains to whip each other and pepper spray. This this looks like gangs of New York. This does not look like America. This is not this is not a healthy country. When people feel that it is so important that they should be out on the street engaging in open armed conflict with one another. You know, of course you wind up with stuff like the Kyle Rittenhouse shootings. Like this is it isn't a question of like could we get there? We are there right now. What if this all comes to play and it, it some of it definitely seems like it's going to and there's a uh, a court where you know, Gorsuch is what we would call the swing justice. Do you have any reason to think that Alito, Gorsuch, a new justice, Amy Coney Barrett, let's say, would rule against Trump if a case were to come to it, an election case about who was to be the next president? We are very lucky that for the most part, the people on the from both the left and the right who have been appointed to the Supreme Court have been of really high quality. You may not agree with their judicial philosophy and their legal philosophy, but they tend to be very smart people with really good temperaments who are also pretty wise as well. Again, I say this is true of the liberal Supreme Court justices who I disagree with, and um, I think most liberals would be able to say the same thing about the, the conservatives on the court who they disagree with. We've been really, really lucky. We haven't gotten hacks. There, there are no Ted Cruz's on the court. You know, there there are no Josh Hawley's on the court. Uh, and I think that remains true. So I would not, in the very, very short term, I would not be as concerned about any of the justices uh, behaving in a way befitting of The Apprentice, you know, or reality TV. I think they would take their jobs very seriously. Again, my the near-term concern is over how the public views the court and then where where things spiral out from there. That is the type of thing that just, you know, makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck. And that's it for the Saturday show. It was produced by Joel Patterson. Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist. Didn't have a hand in this one. He's now an Oklahoman, possibly an Oklahomian, and I believe a birthday boy. So thanks from afar, Corey. I owe you the answer to that trivia question. The total number of people in Chicago over the years, current and past, 28 people. That's crazy, right? All right, thanks for listening. Talk to you Tuesday.